So hello, my name is Della Duncan, speaking about Buddhist economics. So the first thing I'd like to say is that when people ask me, or when I say that I'm going to speak about economics, and I ask people, what comes to mind when I say economics? The things that they tell me are, they think of money, they think of math, and they think of the supply and demand curve. And this is largely because the profession of economics has been increasingly mathematized and turned into a real quantitative science. This is related to something that some folks call physics envy, that economics as a field has something called physics envy, that it aims to be or wishes to be as valid as a science as something like physics or math. And this is not to say that mathematics in economics is not important, but just that it is one part of economics. And actually, in fact, when economics was first created as a field of study by Adam Smith, it actually was it within the Department of Moral Philosophy. So he was a professor of moral philosophy. So this idea then is that the, one of the first things we need to do if we want to have a conversation about Buddhist economics is we want to reconceive or re-question or expand our notion of what economics is. And so in order to do this, I have a poem that I'd like to read. This is a poem called What is Economics? It's something that I wrote to kind of contemplate this idea of expanding and questioning our notion of economics. And I think it's helpful to frame our conversation going into what is Buddhist economics. What is economics? Economics is about our relationship with ourselves. It's about how we use our time, what we do for leisure, our pace, about our ratio of being to doing, about our connection to our passions, our hobbies, about that which we can call our own, about our locus of control, about our sense of self-worth, about the rhythm of our days and our relationship to seasons, about how we introduce ourselves, about the conditions of our past, the quality of our present, how we envision our future, about our freedoms, our constraints, about how we meet our needs, about our role in society, our right livelihood, our mythopoetic identity. Economics is about our relationship with each other. It's about whether we see collaborators or competitors, separation or solidarity, interbeing or alienation, about our level of trust, about the strength of our democracy, about how we relate to power, about how we manage our housework, our child-rearing, our commons, about how we care and get cared for, about what we give and what we get, and how much we share. Economics is about our relationship with Earth. It's about our connection with land, our bioregion, our watershed, about our sense of belonging, about what we build and how we build it, about what and how we eat, where our food comes from, and what happens to our waste, about whether we see the natural world as a supply house or a sewer, a battlefield or a lover, an animate being, Gaia, or our larger ecological self. Economics has the ability to isolate, subjugate, unite, and empower 
It's myth and fact, crisis and opportunity, alive and lifeless, systemic and personal. Economics is not simply the bottom line, the marketplace, the profit margin, or the banknote. And it's not something outside of us. Economics is valueful, valuable, and here. So that's a little bit about an invitation to expand our conception of economics to start this conversation on what Buddhist economics might be. And another thing to do in order to start a conversation on Buddhist economics is to look at, well, what is economics? And then be able to distinguish Buddhist economics from economics. So in order to do this, I have a couple of facts from a a really interesting paper that's called, Does Studying Economics Breed Greed? Does Studying Economics Breed Greed? And this was written by, uh, it's a paper that summarizes a bunch of studies about studying economics. Um, And the paper was written by Dr. Adam Grant. And in it, uh, these were some of the things that, that he discovered. He discovered that in the United States, economics professors give the least amount of money to charity than professors in any other field. They, he also found in doing this research from one study from one study in Israel that altruism drops among economic students, meaning that when they first started out, economic students, they ranked values such as helpfulness, honesty, loyalty, and responsibility. They ranked them as pretty similar to their counterparts in other disciplines. But as they began to study economics and as their economic study progressed, they ranked those value, values as less and less important to themselves than their counterparts in other disciplines. There's also another study by a man named Robert H. Frank about having students find an envelope with money in it to see whether they would return it or not. So it's kind of a test of finding the envelope, has some money, what would they do if they did this? And this study found that economic students were the most likely to be deceitful and keep the money. And maybe even more interesting, they were the most likely to think that anyone else would do the same. And actually, if any of you have studied economics, um, if they took game theory, this, this fact was even worse. They were even more likely to keep the money. There was also a study that Adam Grant wrote about, which is about how even just thinking about economics and being exposed to economic words makes us less compassionate and empathetic. So maybe you're all really worried now, like you're going to go out from this evening and, and not be as compassionate and empathetic. But what, in this study, what they found was they subjected CEOs One group of CEOs uh, is the control group. One is the group that they were testing. And for one group, they gave them um, basically the control group neutral words. So they just subjected them to neutral words and then had them write a letter to an employee that was either conveying bad news, like they were going to be transferred or let go. Okay. And then for the other group, 
They subjected the CEOs to economic language, economic words, and then had them write the letter. And then these letters were then coded for empathy, compassion, um, and kindness. And the people who were exposed to the economic language were found to be far less compassionate and kind in their letters. So that idea is that being exposed to economic words makes us less compassionate and empathetic. So why is this? Well, it's because economics in its traditional sense is based on certain assumptions that go largely unquestioned. So the traditional study of economics has these assumptions that are largely unquestioned because it is seen as valid as a science or a math, and it's not seen as a moral philosophy. So some examples of this, of these assumptions that are underneath the study of economics, are, for example, the idea of homo economicus, the idea of the rational economic person, the idea that, that we as humans are rational and self-interested. Um, there's also the assumption that work is a disutility, that work is something that we have to do and we do begrudgingly and we try to do as little of it as possible and any effort to mechanize or automate is beneficial. There's also the idea that underpins the field of economics that the natural world is made up of resources for our exploitation and extraction, um, and that it's something that can be given a monetary value. These are all implicit assumptions that underpin the field of economics. And we can see then from these assumptions how they may contribute to the economic challenges that we see today. Challenges like growing inequality, homelessness, inhumane labor conditions, climate chaos, pollution. So we can see how these kind of these kind of assumptions may lead to this, these problems that we see. So how might we change this situation, the situation of the economy and the problems that we see, and, how, and what could Buddhist economics and a perspective of, of economics based on Buddhism offer to create the changes? In order to do this, I'd like to bring in uh, a woman named Danella Meadows. Danella Meadows was a systems theorist She's passed away now, but she wrote uh, several books on systems theory, including one book called Thinking in Systems. And in it, she has a chapter called Places to Intervene in a System. So basically a system like an organization, a city, an ecosystem, or in this case, an economy. She looks at the leverage points, the places you can intervene to change the system. And she ranks them in order of effectiveness. So she has the least effective ways to intervene all the way to the highest points of intervention to change something like an economy. The lower level ways to intervene are things like fiddling with the numbers, the subsidies, the taxes. A little bit higher than that are things like improving the information flows, making things more transparent. Even higher than that is changing the rules of a system. But the three highest leverage points for changing a system are what I want to focus on and really bring in the idea of Buddhist economics. So the third highest leverage point for change, so how to change a system, is changing the goal of a system. The goal of a system. So if you think about what is the current goal of our economy, 
perhaps what comes to mind is gross domestic product. Gross domestic product as the total exchange of goods and services and monetary value. This is seen as the golden number, the thing that we want to increase. This is seen as the measure of success for the economy. And it's, it's not just gross domestic product as a nation state, but also in terms of cities. So what does this mean, this kind of goal of blind growth? Well, what it means is that money and development are seen as an ends and not a means. And uh, one example of this is I was knitting one time, and my brother looks over at me and he says, why are you knitting? Don't you know that's bad for the economy? <laughs> and, the, and the thing was, it is true that, that in, an, in a hypothetical world, that, that isn't increasing GDP that actually it would have been much better for the economy had I driven to Target and bought a sweater that was made from a sweatshop in Indonesia, right? So all of these things that are, that are counterintuitive, this kind of things like oil spills or weapon sales or trafficking, they actually increase the gross domestic product. They contribute to this idea of progress. And Another example is if I were to go outside in my backyard and pluck lemons from a tree and make lemonade, that would be worse for the economy than if I drove to a Walmart and bought a thing of, of um, lemonade from Spain. So you can see the kind of craziness of that. And what would it mean to change the goal of the economy from a Buddhist perspective? Well, this is where the idea of gross national happiness comes in. So gross national happiness is a movement that comes from the, the kingdom of Bhutan, a very small country, Bhutan. And it comes from this intention of changing the goal of the economy in this country of Bhutan from blind growth to well-being or happiness. And here's the definition of uh, the economy from a Buddhist perspective in Bhutan. So this is the economy and the goal of the economy. And this is from Dr. Havin To, who was a Buddhist monk ordained by Thich Nhat Hanh, and he's also the former director of the Gross National Happiness Center in Bhutan. He said, economy is not an end. Economy is a means. The end is satisfying human needs. That is what the economy is for. The goal of the economy should be around what brings humans happiness and well-being. But even that is not enough, because we live in a time when the impact of the economy on nature and the environment has been so destructive that if you only focus on human needs, that too will be insufficient. So the economy should serve the needs not only of humans, but of the entire living system or the ecosystem and the planet herself. So that's kind of a different perspective on what should be the goal of the economy from a Buddhist perspective, that the goal should be kind of this thriving or happiness for people and the planet. Where did gross national happiness come from? Where did, where did this come from? There was a, 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 one older king died, and a younger king, he became king at a young age. His name was King Jingmei Wangchuk, and he was a teenager, this was in the 1970s, when he became king, and he didn't know how to be the king. So he went for a walk. He walked around the country of Bhutan. Now, it's a very small country, but he was able to walk around, and he asked the people of Bhutan, what is it that you want from me as your king, as your leader? 
And he thought maybe he would hear them say more roads or more jobs, more development. But they actually said that they wanted to be happy. And here I have to point out that there are many different views of happiness. And the, the Buddhist view of happiness that comes from Bhutan is not a hedonistic, pleasurable happiness, but more a eudaimonic sense of happiness, a happiness that comes from serving or service or serving others. So here's the, here's the Buddhist definition of happiness from the kingdom of Bhutan. Here's the kind of the goal of their economy. This is a quote from a different king, a more recent king, King Jingmei Tinli. And he said, We know that true abiding happiness cannot exist while others suffer and comes only from serving others, living in harmony with nature, and realizing our innate wisdom and the true and brilliant nature of our own minds. I'll read that one more time. We know that true abiding happiness cannot exist while others suffer and comes only from serving others, living in harmony with nature and realizing our innate wisdom and the true and brilliant nature of our own minds. So imagine if that were the goal of the economy. This connects with another, uh, another definition that I love from Buddhist economics. It comes from a man named Stephen Goodman who said, a Bud- Buddhist economic system is a system that works to identify or alleviate suffering. A system that works to identify or alleviate suffering. And I, I, I love that idea, and I often think about this. Like, what would our economy look and feel like if all effort, if all work, either work to identify or alleviate suffering? The Buddhist and uh, Bhutanese definition of happiness is also a very holistic one. It isn't simply psychological well-being, you know, are you happy, yes or no. It includes health and health indicators. It includes living standards. It includes education, uh, the quality of education, also cultural diversity and resilience, community vitality, time use, ecological diversity, and good governance. These are all the kind of areas that make up this holistic view of happiness, according to Bhutan. And what is gross national happiness? If you were to say, well, what is it, this movement? It's one, it's a development philosophy. So it's this new goal of a system. Um, And actually an interesting fact about this is when they first wrote the paper about gross national happiness, it was actually called gross national happiness, a new economic paradigm. But people from uh, from the World Bank came to Bhutan and said, you can't write that. You need to call it a new development paradigm. So it was relegated to development and kind of emerging countries instead of uh, potential change for all countries or all economies. Also, gross national happiness is a measurement tool. And this comes from, there's a great quote again from Dr. Havinto who said, you are attentive to what you measure. You are attentive to what you measure. So again, if the indicator of success is gross domestic product, you know, exchange of goods and services, then that's what we move towards. That's what we support. But if it is something different, a more holistic view of happiness, then that is what is promoted. So in order to do that, there's a measurement tool. So they do, they, um, they have a survey, uh, both um, written and in person. 
And they include questions like, how happy are you? So they do ask about subjective well-being. But they also ask things like, how many people close, are so close to you that you could count on them if you were sick? If you were unwell, how many people could you count on to take care of you? What about if you were in financial trouble? How many people could you count on to take care of you? What if you were having an emotional uh, an issue or an emotionally difficult time? How many people could you count on? And also, what about in life celebrations? If you had a, cele- a life celebration, how many people would come? And I think that, to me, is a huge question because I think about many people with lots and lots of money can still have a hard time finding, finding people to, to take care of them or to support them in times of need. Also on the survey, they ask about time use. So how often do you sleep? How much sleep do you get? How much do you work? They ask about how often do you meditate? They also ask about indigenous knowledge, literacy, skills, language, also knowledge of plants and the other living beings that they share their area with. So do you, can you name the plants and animals around? Um, how often do you play archery, which is their national sport? Um, and, and also how much of, the, of the, the language, the indigenous languages, do, do people know? And then one of my favorite questions that's on the survey is, do you believe that trees are sacred? That's an indicator of happiness, according to the Bhutanese. So as you can see, it's not just are you happy, yes or no. It's much more nuanced. And then they are able to use this measurement tool to then say who and what they'd like to target to increase happiness. So maybe they find that women are losing indigenous knowledge, so then they'll, they'll look at that. Or maybe they'll find that people in rural areas are not sleeping enough, so then they'll target that. So they're able to kind of target based on what they measure. Gross national happiness is also a policy screening tool, meaning a way to make decisions within the country. So they actually run decisions through this holistic sense of happiness and well-being to see whether it is a good idea for the country. For example, the Bhutan decided not to join the World Trade Organization because they went through the the nine domains, which I read, and they said, okay, it would help with... um, ecological, I mean, it would help with, uh, it would, it might help with economic development. It might help with living standards. Um, potentially it might help with time use, who knows, but they said it would not help with our ecological diversity. It would not help with our cultural diversity and resilience, and it might hurt our health, right? So they actually said, you know what, this isn't a good idea. And they decided not to join the world trade organization using this different, Uh, way of uh, policy screening. Finally, gross national happiness is also an inner transition tool. So it's not just thinking about systems as something outside of us, but it's also about seeing uh, the inner capacities as well. So it's about bringing in mindfulness and compassion practices. So it connects with that idea that the economy is not something outside of us, but something that we embody and that we co-create. So it, it is about that kind of inner transition of mindfulness and compassion practices. And I'll also say that uh, gross national happiness is in Bhutan, but it is also spreading around the world. Um, Switzerland, there's a group in Switzerland that are working to get gross national happiness on, the, on a referendum vote. You also have uh, 
organizations and businesses that are adopting gross national happiness to change their business practices, such as Eileen Fisher, if you know of Eileen Fisher, the clothing brand. There's also schools. I was just in Canada at a university called Mount Allison University in Canada, which is adopting the Gross National Happiness Survey to measure the happiness and well-being of the students, faculty, and staff. Um, and also local governments are using it as well. And there's also examples of uh, similar but, but slightly different ideas that have shown up in different cultural contexts. Going back to this idea of Donella Meadows and the leverage points to intervene in a system, I mentioned the third highest leverage point, which is this idea of changing the goal of the system. The second highest leverage point to change a system is changing the paradigm of a system. So the mindset or the worldview. This connects with this uh, quote from Einstein. We cannot solve our problems with the same thinking that created them. We cannot solve our problems with the same thinking that created them. And another quote by Robert Persig from the book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. He said, if a factory is torn down, but the rationality which produced it is left standing, then that rationality will simply produce another factory. If a revolution destroys a government, but the systematic patterns of thought that produce that government are left intact, then those patterns will simply repeat themselves. So this idea that one way to change an economy is to change the paradigm or the mindset. And I think here we really see some benefits to Buddhism and the idea of Buddhist economics because uh, it can offer us new ways of seeing, new worldview, new paradigm. For example, uh, the concept of interbeing the concept of interbeing offers a worldview shift or a paradigm shift. And to illustrate the concept of interbeing, I have a, a poem by Thich Nhat Hanh uh, called There Are Clouds in This Paper. So this is to illustrate the concept of interbeing. So I offer it as a, a meditation, as a poem on this sheet of paper. And maybe as we go through it, if you think to what it would mean for economics or our, our understanding or our worldview about the economy. So I'll go ahead and read it. If you are a poet, you will clearly see that there is a cloud floating in this sheet of paper. Without a cloud, there will be no rain. Without rain, trees cannot grow. Without trees, we cannot make paper. The cloud is essential for this piece of paper to exist. If the cloud is not here, this sheet of paper cannot be here either. So we can say that the cloud and the paper inter-are. Interbeing is not a word in the dictionary yet, but if we combine the prefix inter with the verb to be, we have a new verb, interbe. Without a cloud, we cannot have paper. So we can say that the cloud and this sheet of paper inter-are. If we look into this sheet of paper even more deeply, we can see the sunshine in it. If the sunshine is not there, the forest cannot grow. In fact, nothing can grow. Even we cannot grow without sunshine. And so we know that the sunshine is also in this sheet of paper. The paper and the sunshine inter-are. And if we continue to look, we can see the logger who cut the tree to bring it to the mill to be transformed into this paper. And we can see the wheat, for we know the logger cannot exist without his daily bread. 
And therefore the wheat that became his bread is also in this sheet of paper. And the logger's father and mother are in it too. When we look this way, we can see that without all these things, this sheet of paper cannot exist. So that, again, is a poem by Thich Nhat Hanh and illustrating the concept of interbeing. And for me, what this offers is, an, is a new way of seeing within our economy. Imagine if we saw interbeing. Imagine if I were to look at this cup and see where it came from, what materials produced it, the quality of, of care or not care, the emissions that brought it to me, all of that. Imagine if we were more aware of this and more sensitive to it. There's this great example of a, of a woman. Her name is Sarah Corbett. She's someone who calls herself a craftivist. And she makes these little scrolls um, as part of her craftivism, combining craft and activism. And she does something with these scrolls called shop dropping. So instead of shoplifting, where you'd go and you'd steal something from a store... She goes into stores that use sweatshop labor, and she drops these little scrolls into the clothing items of the clothes so that somebody who goes in and tries on the clothes takes it out of the pocket as they're trying it on in the dressing room, and they read it. And here's what they would read. If clothes could talk, what tales might they tell? Stories of how they were made with love and care or sadness, tragedy, and exploitation? What do your clothes say to you? And I just love this example because it's, it's a, more of a question. It's not necessarily shaming someone or making them feel bad, but really just asking them to think about these kind of things. And it's interesting because this, to me, demonstrates kind of the, the concept of interbeing and this invitation to think about our connectedness and our interconnectedness and to see more... Uh, systemically. And um, Joanna Macy, an eco-justice Buddhist philosopher and activist, she talks about this as the web of life. And to imagine as if we could feel more into the tugs of pain or suffering or gladness and joy within the web of life, if we were able to be more susceptible to that. And she actually wrote a book called Mutual Causality in Buddhism and General Systems Theory basically connecting this concept of thinking, thinking in systems or thinking systemically and also this idea of mutual, co mutual causality co-arising the web of life in Buddhism, interbeing. Another, another way of changing the paradigm, uh, another thing that Buddhism offers as a way of cha changing the paradigm is the practice of dana, something that I mentioned earlier. So dana, as I said, again, this Pali word for generosity really connects with something called uh, the gift paradigm and this other area of gift economics. So basically this idea that the gift paradigm, as I said before, that um, in the gift paradigm, something is offered freely, something is offered for other, for another. It's other-oriented. Whereas the exchange paradigm, which would be the opposite, is something is offered for one's own self-interest. And maybe you can think to a time where you've done some work and you've done it for the other. It's been other-oriented. And maybe you can also think to a time when you've done some work for yourself or your self-orientation. 
And so what would it mean to have more of a Donna paradigm or a gift paradigm to our economy where more work was done for the other and less for one's own self-interest? And I think one of the one of the ways to think about this is Oprah has a quote saying, if you get paid for doing what you love, every paycheck is a bonus. If you get paid for doing what you love, every paycheck is a bonus. So obviously we cannot all do work all the time that is inherently other-oriented, and we sometimes must think to our own self-interest. But how can, even when we're doing work that we may not love, how can we find the intrinsic value in it or the other orientation in it? Another, another thing that comes with this idea of work and rethinking work and this kind of changing the paradigm is the concept of right livelihood. So right livelihood, um, there's many different ways to think about it, but obviously coming from Buddhism, um, my favorite definition of, of right livelihood um, is an understanding that comes from a quote. There, I'll say the first quote, and then I'll say my interpretation of it. So the quote that I was inspired by to think of right livelihood is a quote by Frederick Buchner, And he said, the place God calls you to is the place where your deepest gladness and the world's deepest hunger meet. God calls you to the place where your deepest gladness and the world's deepest hunger meet. And so my, when I heard that, I kind of thought about it as, what is your right livelihood? Your right livelihood is the place where your deepest gladness meets the world's deepest hunger at your highest potential for change. And what this means to me is, your deepest gladness is like, where do you find flow? Where do you find ease? Where do you find joy? What do you love to do? What kind of situation? Is it mentoring? Is it parenting? Is it, is it teaching? Is it writing? Is it art? What is the world's deepest, where does that meet the world's deepest sadness or the world's deepest hunger? So what moves you? What breaks your heart? And then what is your highest potential for change? So based on the skills that you have, the background that you have, um, the networks that you're a part of, what's that highest potential for change? And it's, it's this point, this point is your right livelihood, in my sense, in my understanding. And note that it can be paid or unpaid. It doesn't need to necessarily be monetized. Like I said, being a parent can be your right livelihood. Being a caretaker can be your right livelihood. It also can change. It can change through time. Um, but really, this concept of right livelihood then harkens back to this eudaimonic happiness or this idea that happiness cannot exist while others suffer. So this idea of happiness through service. I'll just, I'll, I'll close and then open for questions with um, the highest point of leverage. Some of you may have thought, okay, so you said the third highest was changing the goal of the system. The second highest was changing the paradigm of the system. What's the highest leverage point, the highest leverage point of change? And what uh, Danella Meadows said, it is, it is the power to transcend paradigms. The power to transcend paradigms. And here's what she wrote. She said, there is yet one leverage point even higher than changing a paradigm. That is to keep oneself unattached in the arena of paradigms, to stay flexible and to realize that no paradigm is true, that every one, including that one that sweetly shapes your own worldview, is a tremendously limited understanding of an immense and amazing universe that is far beyond human comprehension.
comprehension. It is to get at a gut level the paradigm that there are paradigms and to see that, that itself is a paradigm and to regard that whole realization as devastatingly funny. It is to let go into not knowing, into what Buddhists call enlightenment. So that's that kind of idea of choosing between paradigms. And uh, I just love that it even ends with this Buddhist idea. So I definitely want to hear what what questions and comments are coming up for people. Um, And then I will close with a poem and our metta practice. So I'll open it up now for any questions, comments, things that you're thinking about or feeling. Uh, We have a mic that we'll pass around. And please hold the mic close like you're eating an ice cream cone. Who has anything they'd like to share or say? Any thoughts or things that come up? Yeah. Is this on? Yeah. Uh, where is this um, economic theory being uh, taught or practiced? Because it's completely new to me. So I'm curious about how widespread it is at this point. Mm. Yeah. So uh, I would, well, my economic training came from Schumacher College, which is in England. It was inspired by the economist E.F. Schumacher who actually wrote a book called Small is Beautiful, which has a chapter called Buddhist Economics. Um, and the school, uh, the, the degree that I have, a master's in economics for transition, um, is all about the transition from life-destructive systems to life-sustaining and life-thriving ones. Um, it was, the school was created by a Jain uh, monk, a former Jain monk named Satish Kumar, who also founded uh, Resurgence and Ecologist magazine. Um, and he did a pilgrimage, a two-year pilgrimage around the world without any money. So that's kind of the, the place where I learned from, and I currently teach there as well on that Economics for Transition program. Um, I would also say that uh, the uh, Gross National Happiness Education, I also got there, but it's also connected with Bhutan, as I mentioned. Um, and that community is connected with Otto Sharmer and U-Theory, um, which comes from MIT. I would say that uh, Joanna Macy, who I mentioned, who's local to Berkeley, I would say that she teaches about a lot of this, um, maybe not in the specific language of economics, although you can certainly find it. Um, I would say that uh, Naropa University, uh, the Buddhist University in Boulder, Colorado, is another place I've studied that has had elements of this. Um, I know there's some folks connected with uh, CIIS, Uh, California Institute of Integral Studies, another place where I imagine that you would find this type of thing. I would say that uh, there are um, also, I have to mention, uh, Dr. Claire Brown at um, UC Berkeley. Uh, She's a labor economics professor who um, is actually part of this sangha. She's unable to be here tonight, but she uh, studied economics, taught economics, got interested in Buddhism, and recently wrote a book called Buddhist Economics. Um, and she teaches uh, at UC Berkeley on the subject of Buddhist economics. But um, 
And then, of course, there are so many different folks that study many different traditions of economics, from feminist economics, new economics, solidarity economics, cooperative economics. Um, uh, there's, there's so many. Um, and they all kind of connect. I think my the way that I would see that is uh, there's the words of uh, two women who wrote under the same pen name, uh, feminist economics, two women, called Gibson Graham, and they talk about a global sea of capitalism with many islands of alternatives. And I see that Buddhist economics, feminist economics, new economics, um, all of these are different islands with very similar things and similar values. Um, I think we could also find, you know, spirituality and economics. There'd be a lot of connection there. So I would say it's, uh, it's not yet very visible, particularly in mainstream institutions, certainly. Um, but there are so many organizations and folks that are doing this work around the world. Right here. Hi, thank Hi. you. Yeah. I really appreciate this talk. This is really in insightful. I'm really curious about the role or the position of that which we call scarcity mm. in Buddhist economics because it seems that scarcity can only exist inside the goal of raising the GDP. And I'm wondering if scarcity even exists or is capable of existing if the goal becomes to increase the gross national happiness. So just real quick, I, I see this pattern that like how our society is right now. A lot of people are in this scarce mentality and it's really unfortunate and tragic and it, it really breaks my heart, you know, that this is so prevalent. And at the same time, I'm, questioning what scarcity actually is because at a certain point what i see is the very people who have been had this mentality for you know 10 years 15 years they're still okay you know like we're still okay and so i wonder what this thing called scarcity actually is and what role it has to play in in a new paradigm Yeah, um, excellent question. And uh, I remember uh, one of the things that I, I learned through my study of economics in this different way was uh, learning from nature um, and learning from natural systems and, you know, seeing the abundance of life on, let's say, an apple tree or um, an oak tree, right? How many, how many oak trees come from one acorn, right? Um, and I had this aha moment with someone where we said, oh my gosh, to be an economist is to be an abundance manager, to manage abundance. Or what would it be like if we didn't see scarcity and we saw abundance? Um, so that's one, one thing that comes to mind when you say this. Another thing is um, in Bhutan, as I mentioned, they do this measurement tool. They actually don't say that they want everyone to reach 100 on each level, on each area. Let's say community, vitality, health, education. They actually have sufficiency thresholds. So they have kind of a, an area to which that is sufficient enough to be sufficiently happy. <laughs> 
Um, and I remember that um, that when E.F. Schumacher uh, went to Burma, uh, where he stu- where he wrote his chapter on Buddhist economics many many years ago, he he found it very surprising that people, the Buddhist people there, were trying to find happiness with less and less, where he was used to happiness with more and more. So absolutely, I think that this questioning of what is scarcity, what are needs, um, what is abundance, all of that are, are very, very interesting questions and definitely part of this, this, uh, this idea of changing the paradigm. I think we had a question oh, back there, and then, and then we'll come back to you. I'm wondering if there's such a thing as like financial advisors with the alternate you know, Buddhist economic point of view. Yeah. Well, what I would say is to be a, maybe a right livelihood mentor or coach, what I would do is I would ask someone, where is that point where your deepest joy or gladness meets the world's deepest hunger at your highest potential for change? I would ask that and I would work with someone to co-create that in their life. And I would also ask them what their needs are and how their needs can be met. Some needs can be met monetarily, financially, and some needs can be met in other ways, through community, through sharing. Um, So I would say that I would focus more, if I were working with someone in this kind of Buddhist economics, uh, financial advising sense, I would look more towards helping them to cultivate their sense of right livelihood and then helping them to cultivate a sense of their needs being met. And some of which could be monetized and some of which doesn't have to be, if that makes sense. We have a question over here. Um, Thank you. Um, So I'm finishing my economic studies so (laughs) right now. And I'm thinking about what kind of job I want to take on afterwards. So I like the idea of Buddhist economics. So now suppose I meet where the greatest gladness and where the greatest sadness meet. Um, And I believe that such a paradigm shift um, would bring a lot of um, obstacles because a lot of people would see their interests and their uh, way of living and power at, um, at loss. So I wonder, could you give an example... Um, of which are the greatest obstacles to Buddhist economics and which are success stories. So I know where to put my energy and where not. Yeah. Um, what comes to mind is, uh, is the work of uh, Tom Crompton, who is a man who studies in, uh, he does work in the United Kingdom, the UK, and he has an organization called the Common Cause Foundation. And he does work on values. And he talks about extrinsic values and intrinsic values. And this idea that we have, we have both sets that can be activated. And extrinsic values are values like um, power, prestige, fame, wealth. They are values that rely on external factors to validate them. And then intrinsic values are values like kindness, compassion, connection with nature, community, vitality, things like that. And that we have the capacity to activate these different values in our life, okay? And um, some systems activate extrinsic values 
and so some systems activate intrinsic values. For example, um, when I've been in nature for a while, I feel more kind and compassionate and altruistic. But as soon as I drive into San Francisco and I start to see the billboards, I start to think, uh, wow, I'm not, I'm not good looking enough, or I wish I had that car, I would feel happier then. Do you see what I'm saying? It activates my extrinsic values. So I would say that one of the biggest problems or challenges to a Buddhist economics uh, worldview is that if a, if a, if a economy values competition, then that economy will inherently be more competitive than an economy that doesn't value competition, that has other values, such as the thriving of all beings or community vitality or happiness or well-being. So it's about um, being aware of that, that kind of that pressure of the competition of the extrinsic values. It's about that mindfulness, being aware of that. Um, and it's about continuing to go back to that kind of that source or what is important for that economy. That I think that Bhutan does a really good job of, of that articulation of what is happiness and what is important. I, I would say that Bhutan is one example, you said, of a success story. I, I would say that, and maybe that could be something to learn more from. Um, but I think, too, even in the Bay Area, I mean, we have uh, so many folks who are interested in mindfulness and compassion practices, not only for themselves, but what does that mean off the cushion, right? Even James, our, our teacher here, you know, um, or especially James, what does it mean for climate action, right? What does it mean for our work in the world? So how can we have engaged Buddhism, kind of off the cushion Buddhism? So I would say maybe look towards examples of that. Um, and if you have this background in economics, what are the ways that you find that your Buddhist practice and the Buddhist principles can be applied to what you've learned about systems and economies? Because I do think that, like for me, this was just, these were thoughts and kind of reflections that I came up with, but there's so much potential for this connection of Buddhism and economics and so much yet to be, to be found out. Yeah. Right here. Uh, I wonder if you could say something more about your title as the master trainer for Bhutan gross national happiness or whatever the title was. What yeah. does that mean? Yeah. So Bhutan, uh, because they went through this um, wanting to change the goal of their economic system from gross domestic product to gross national happiness, they had all these people come uh, to create what is this, and um, they're doing the work there in the country to, to implement, to measure, and do all these things that I mentioned. Um, but because it is so innovating and pioneering, there's also been so much interest around the world um, on the country of Bhutan and what they're doing. And it's unfortunately drawn a lot of their people out to give talks and presentations around the world and really not allowed them to really focus on growing it within their country. So uh, two years ago, they created a gross national happiness practitioner program for people who want to become practitioners in gross national happiness to change the goals of systems in organizations, businesses, uh, schools, or local economies, or national economies. So kind of uh, disseminating or distributing that information so people can do it in wherever their home country is. Um, and I was part of that first program, and now I've become hired on to be a gross national happiness master trainer, meaning that I teach the, the practitioner program. So I teach people how to then adopt gross national happiness in their own context. Um, and I, so I work with the gross national, work 
for the Gross National Happiness Center in Bhutan. One last question there in the back. Uh, where does the, the concepts of the concept of capitalism and socialism plug in to these things that you're saying? Because as a non-economics student, uh, that's the first thing I think of with economics is there's these two huge areas, capitalism and socialism, which don't see eye to eye. Yeah. I would say that um, in the beginning of, of the talk that I did, when I talked about the assumptions that underpin economics and also the, uh, the certain ways that students who study economics are socialized, I could have said capitalist or capitalist values or neoliberal capitalism. I could have used that language um, because I think that we could have the same conversation on what are the paradigms or the, um, the worldview that underpin capitalism. We would find a lot of the same things. And I think we could find a lot of the other things that I talked about with Buddhist economics within socialism or maybe even more so eco-socialism. I would say even more so eco-socialism. But I think that what you're asking really returns to that idea that I said of like a, a diversity or a plurality of alternatives. Uh, like I said, feminist economics, Buddhist economics, new economics, solidarity economics, socialism, Marxism, communism. Like there's many, many different ones. And I think that they have overlaps and they have things that don't overlap and they have um, different cultural uh, specificities. Like there's the movement of Buen Vivir in, um, in South America. I would say that gross national happiness, you know, coming from Bhutan. So I would say there's differences and unity in these movements. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't solely break it down to ca capitalism versus socialism. I would say it's much more nuanced. But I would say that questioning of what are the paradigms that underpin those two values is an interesting starting place for, for a conversation on changing paradigms and changing goals of systems. Okay. So I'm going to close with a, a poem uh, and then the meta practice. This is a poem called uh, Who is the Economist? So, and this is another one that I wrote. Economics, Greek, oikos, nomos. Eco, oikos, household, home. Nomics, nomos, nomos, management. Home, management. At first, home, domestic home. Domestic, familial, home, management. Later, home, national. National, nation, state, home, management. Now, home, planet, planetary, Gaian, home, management. Now, economics, planetary, home, management. Economy, the phenomenon of planetary home managing. What for? Not just the meeting of human needs and not just the meeting of human and non-human needs. The enlivenment of all beings, the self-realization, the thriving, the flourishing of all beings, including the living earth itself. Economist, who manages the flourishing of all beings? Those who deeply know our home, the ecologists, the biologists, the physicists, the gardeners, those who architect and deliver ways to manage our home, the designers, the lawyers, the public servants, the farmers. 
those who identify injustice and prevent further harm, the activists, the journalists, the advocates, the whistleblowers, those who heal and heal suffering and guide us towards flourishing, the healers, the elders, the mentors, the parents, those who challenge and provoke and illustrate the paradigms and stories of home management, the artists, the musicians, the spiritual leaders, the teachers, the poets, those who share the wisdom and love of the universe and remind us of our place in the web of life, the rivers, the winds, the trees, the fungi, the rocks, the insects, the animals. If all beings play a part in the managing of our home, then are we all economists? Or is economics a part of us all manifesting through our own unique contribution to flourishing? Perhaps to be an economist is a state of intention, attention, connection. The moment we glimpse the big picture, the wholeness, the harmony, the moment we think holistically and systemically, the moment we appreciate the contributions of all beings to our flourishing, the moment we sense into the condition of our home managing, the qualities, the emergent properties, when we feel the suffering, the joy, the disease, and the hope coming through the tugs of life. To be an economist is to respond each in our own way with our gifts, our shadows, and our histories, to live for a locus beyond oneself, to act on behalf of the living whole, for the flourishing of all beings, to be an abundance manager, an ecosatva, a life protector, a life enabler, and above all, a humble member in the co-creation of our shared journey in this moment of this universe. So let's, let's take a moment together in silence. We'll send some loving kindness and compassion for all those that I named and all those beings with whom we share this wonderful planet who I didn't name. May we all be happy. May we all be healthy. And may we all be well. Thank you all. Have a beautiful evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.